Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. My guest today is a physician who has been successfully treating COVID patients. She has also documented in detail the many illegal measures taken to suppress the use of cheap, effective drugs for treating COVID, including hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Dr. Merrill Nass is, right now, in the Orwellian position of having had her medical license suspended by the state of Maine's Board of Licensure in Medicine for, quote, public dissemination of misinformation regarding the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, unquote, and being ordered by the board to undergo a psychological evaluation conducted by a psychologist of the board's choice to ensure that she is fit to continue treating patients. The board claims they received complaints last October and November about Dr. Nass spreading alleged misinformation about COVID and COVID vaccines. To further complicate matters, Nass wrote to the board in December to report that she had to lie to a pharmacy to get life-saving hydroxychloroquine for a COVID patient by telling the pharmacy the patient had Lyme disease. Why? Because while hydroxychloroquine is banned in Maine for treating COVID, it is allowed for treating Lyme disease. So who is Dr. Nass? She's an internal medicine physician and activist. Her expertise and experience include treating patients with Gulf War syndrome, fibromyalgia, and COVID. She has also consulted for the World Bank, the Government Accountability Office, and the U.S. Director of National Intelligence on Prevention, Investigation, and Mitigation of Chemical and Biological Warfare, and on Pandemics. She is also a Scientific Advisory Board member of Robert Kennedy's Children's Health Defense Fund. So some big questions here are, did Dr. Nass harm any patients? Were any of her COVID patients among those who called Maine's Board of Licensure and Medicine to complain? And is the information Dr. Nass is sharing with the public actually misinformation? Dr. Nass will address these questions in the course of recounting her story. Welcome, Meryl. Hi, thanks for having me again, Christina. So let's begin at the beginning. What happened and when did this start? What I know of is that there began to be a national movement by medical um, professional nonprofit organizations. By those, I mean the American Medical Association, some of the specialty boards, in other words, the Board of Internal Medicine, the Board of Pediatrics, um, and a, an organization that basically services med state medical boards. State medical boards are the only entity with authority over doctor's licenses. And they are comprised in every state, every state has its own rules, but they're comprised of a staff, that is paid by the state and doctors and maybe um, non-medical professionals and perhaps in my case, uh, physician assistants. And this board's job is to protect the patients of the state from uh, physicians or physician assistants who are not capable of practicing good medicine. And normal, and in, my, in the case of Maine, they send out a uh, newsletter, I think every quarter, and they list the doctors who's, who have been um, 
punished by having their licenses removed or being put on probation or something else. And almost invariably, these are due to substance abuse issues. Um, not in every case, but it probably at least 90% of the cases. Um, there was no, okay, in my particular case, there were no patient complaints. Um, there, there were four complaints, two by strangers, regular people who saw me on the internet say something they didn't like and reported Wait a second, hold up, hold up now. You didn't even treat these people? They weren't patients? They, they never met me. I don't know them. Okay, all right. They saw okay. something on the internet and they didn't like it and they decided to complain to the board. Um, and the wow. first one actually wrote a very sort of legally um, complex document about, I've never met Dr. Ness. I don't know any of her patients. You know, I saw this and this is what I, you know, blah, blah. So those were the first two complaints. And then in, uh, then the board, I think, went looking for complaints because there had, in, in 41 years practicing medicine, there'd only ever been one complaint previously from the son of a patient and it was investigated and they found that I had treated the mother perfectly and the son apologized to me afterwards for having made the complaint. So that's 41 years. And now all of a sudden the board within a period of four months gets four complaints. So how does that happen? Um, so the next two complaints were doctors who have never met me, who don't know me, who, but each of them, well, one was a nurse, uh, a nurse midwife and one was a doctor and each of them wound up treating a patient uh, that I had treated. And one was a woman delivering a baby who had had COVID during her pregnancy and I treated her with hydroxychloroquine. So that midwife reported me, even though the patient was fine, the baby was fine, nobody had been harmed but reported me simply for having given her hydroxychloroquine. And in the other case, um, a patient who I had treated with ivermectin, who subsequently wound up in the hospital, was treated by another doctor, told the other doctor that I had given her ivermectin. The doctor felt compelled to report that I had treated this patient with horse paste. So um, those were the four complaints. And then there was a fifth complaint, which I had, which the board called a complaint. And that was the one that I had made when I told the board, you've put me in an untenable position where I was forced to either basically protect a patient or protect myself. And I decided to protect the patient. And I, um, after calling in a prescription for um, hydroxychloroquine, and um, azithromycin, I notified the board that, I, that when the pharmacist called me back, I said it was for Lyme disease because had I said it was for COVID, the pharmacist would not have dispensed it. And, um, and that this was done. And the reason the pharmacist wouldn't have dispensed it was not because there was a rule regulation or law prohibiting them from dispensing it. Actually, in my state, the governor said and the um, board of pharmacy have both specified that it's okay in, in legal documents, guidances they issued, that it is okay to dispense and prescribe hydroxychloroquine for acute COVID, but not for prevention. But, and they did that in April of 2020. Wait a second here. Yes. That's a little suspicious now, isn't it? Because isn't hydroxychloroquine effective in early COVID, but not in late COVID? Absolutely. Yes. Is that, do you think they did that on purpose? 
Yes. That's so evil. Well, let's uh, let's not even go into that now. I mean, we, we did talk about that in, a, in an earlier show about the suppression of hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, but to uh, actually say, yes, you can use it in the late phase when they know well, the it doesn't work. And now, late. that happened in some other states. For instance, New York, which said you can't use it in outpatients. You can only use it when patients are hospitalized, when it no longer works. But in Maine... I am allowed to prescribe it the day, or I was until my license was removed, um, the day somebody becomes sick, but not the day before. So they can't have it in their house waiting until they get sick. And they can't take it weekly for prevention as many people do. And it's apparently pretty effective that way. So, but, so anyway, that was, that was an April, 2020 guidance almost two years ago. Subsequently, someone at the state level has frightened the pharmacists into not dispensing it without issuing a written guidance. So there's no law, no guideline, no rule or regulation, but they all know that if they dispense hydroxychloroquine for acute COVID, they may be investigated and they could potentially lose their licenses. So they won't. And I've had several pharmacists basically beg me to prescribe it in a different way so that they could um, evade being investigated. So I've been asked by pharmacists to say that it was for a different diagnosis than COVID or to prescribe it for a different period of time. So it would appear that it was for lupus or something else. So, I mean, the, the pharmacists are very, very aware of this problem. We're all dealing with it, but because, but what I think is so insidious is that the the agent, the governmental agents who are the only ones who have authority over the pharmacies chose to do this in an underhanded manner without putting it in black and white. Now, what so, government agencies are you talking about and what exactly did they do to make this happen? Well, that's it. I can't, they didn't put it in black and white, so I can't tell you. They made all the pharmacies frightened to dispense. They, they somehow have had the pharmacists ask what is the reason you want this drug, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, and if you want it for COVID, we're not dispensing it. Now there's no rule anywhere that says that should happen. But where did this edict come from? It had to come in an email from someone or a letter from someone, didn't it? Christina, we are living in very dangerous times. It, is against, it would have been against the law for them to write it. This is a legal drug. This is a lic fully licensed drug. I and other practitioners are fully licensed. According to US law, we have the right to prescribe it and the pharmacists have the right to dispense it. There is not, and so what has been done is illegal. That's why it's not written down. I'm just curious, like, did you ask a pharmacist, well, who called you and told you not to do this? I have talked to a few of them and, and heard different stories. So I was told that early on in the pandemic, they were told to screen all the prescriptions for chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin. Later, they were given, they were sent um, a notice from the CDC about how ivermectin uh, could poison people. Although the two cases that CDC cited were one person who got it off the internet and one person who used an animal ivermectin product. 
So CDC didn't have an example of an actual prescribed drug harming anyone. But my uh, uh, one of the local pharmacists who I know, who is a recent member of the pharmacy board told me when he got that letter from CDC, he knew he, should, he needed to stop prescribing ivermectin, okay? So he got the message, even though it was written between the lines. Right. And he called me and he sent me over a copy of the letter he had received from the CDC. And then that was in August, late August, and in last year, and in late September, the Maine Pharmacy Board basically sent a letter designed to frighten pharmacists, but without saying anything specific. So what it basically said was, you know, people can be harmed and blah, blah, blah. And therefore we want you to screen the prescriptions and only dispense for legitimate purposes. So this is the federal of state medical boards. Is that okay? Okay. So of the things I just said, one came from the federal CDC, one guidance to all pharmacists. And the other came from my state pharmacy board to main pharmacists a month later telling them only to dispense the drug for legitimate purposes, okay? So it didn't say what not to, why, when, how, what the punishment would be. It was a veiled threat. So that's what I wanna make clear. It, it's, it, it's hard for people to understand that we're operating now on the basis of veiled threats rather than legal measures and things written down in black and white. Okay, to get back, so when I, when I started this discussion, I said that various nonprofit professional medical organizations all started issuing warnings at the same time as these last two documents came out in late July, August, September, these organizations started issuing warnings that doctors could lose their licenses or lose their board certifications if they um, prescribed ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine incorrectly if they said negative things about vaccines and encourage patients not to receive COVID vaccines, or if they spread misinformation in general, without none of them specified what misinformation was or what subjects uh, were particularly prone to misinformation. There were very uh, broad statements and I found them interesting because none of these nonprofit organizations has the authority to remove a, a doctor's license. One of those organizations was the Federation of State Medical Boards, which, as I said, services the medical boards. The medical boards do have the authority. This organization provides them with training, education, awards, you know, you know, tries to keep what they do somewhat uh, systematic and uniform. All of these organizations, um, are, are what I call bloated nonprofits. Their CEOs earn about a million dollars or more a year. And they solicit grants from pharma and from the CDC and similar entities to carry out projects on their behalf. Okay. okay. Now, now, none of them have, filed, have yet filed, I can't get the tax returns of any of these or nonprofit organizations for last year because it's too early in the year. So I don't know why they all at the same time started issuing warnings and threats, but they did. I wrote to the 
American Board of Internal Medicine last fall and said, what do you mean by this? What is your authority to issue these threats? Um, you know, what do you mean by disinformation? And they didn't answer me. And then when my, and then in November, my own medical board sent out such a warning, October, November, sent out such a warning to doctors in my state. And I wrote to them and said, under what authority are you going to regulate free speech? You know, there is, we have a first amendment and um, what, how are you defining misinformation? Uh, you know, what statute are you using? And of course they didn't answer me. Um, and, I, you know, and they went after me at that point. Um, but I, you know, I think I was already in their um, sights because I'm very active in writing and speaking and, and I've been trying to clear up mis, you know, official misinformation since the start of the pandemic. So uh, you know, I've I've written scientific articles on masks and on uh, case definitions and the number of cases, the number of deaths, number of hospitalizations, and how those numbers are not necessarily accurate on problems with the PCR tests. You know, I've I've done a lot of you know public education. You wrote that one article about the massive corruption of the suppression of the. Uh, the hydroxychloroquine point and i reckon i mean and and you literally list i i, I don't know it's like 60 some ways 58, 58 <laughs> ways that they have systematically uh, and corruptly suppressed those drugs it, that it was it's an amazing article i mean it's just they do it this way this way this way this way 58 of them and you look at it and you say well this is a massive conspiracy it really is to keep these drugs from getting out there so so let's let's get back to so you get this letter from them and i noticed that i mean they make their their complaint against you public and i noticed like the the complaint itself is simply um this is what's so nefarious about it. Uh, a, you're putting out disinformation about COVID, which means you're crazy. And that's the only thing in the statute that they're trying to use or the regulation that they're trying to use that they can use because it's obvious that you're not a drunk or a drug, drugged out person, whatever. So they have to call you crazy. And what they list is a series of statements that you made from based on your research, which these are articles you wrote not while you were treating patients or to treat patients. Correct. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I say that, while the patient was in your office or while you were actively dealing with a patient, you did this on your own time. This was your research and your private life and so on and so forth. But they have plunked this in the middle of your practice, you know, and, uh, and, then, and then, of course, they mention these complaints against you that you gave ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So it becomes so Orwellian in a sense, because they're suppressing these things. They have the orders to suppress. So now they have to come after you and your practice and say, well, this woman is treating these people. And so the, my first question to you is all these patients that they're talking about in, uh, in their document, that the first one, not the one where they want you to appear uh, for a medical evaluation by their own psychologist, so you can, you know, you know how that's going to turn out. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, 
just nuts. And I had to pay $2,100 for the privilege. They said, bring $2,100, you know, that's what it'll cost you to see the psychologist. You haven't seen that psychologist yet, right? No, because my lawyers filed, you know, a motion uh, uh, for an injunction against it. So, and that hasn't been heard, you know, we haven't gone to court, but I still may be required to do so. Why? Well, because the board has a statute, which my lawyers feel is unconstitutional, which says you, if we order that we have, that it's a privilege to practice medicine in Maine, and therefore every doctor is subject to being ordered to have an, a medical or, or physical evaluation at any time. And, and you either go, or if you don't go, um, we consider that an admission that you have the condition. Now, in my case, they didn't actually, nobody's made an allegation that I have a condition. <laughs> That's the funny thing. They've got an apples and oranges thing here because you're being, you're being sort of accused, I would say, of mental instability, but they're not giving examples of your mental instability. They're just no. giving examples of things you have said in articles you've written about um, COVID, you know, COVID-19 issue, issues and vaccine issues. So I, I don't, that I don't understand. I don't understand how that can even be a tenable uh, submission on their part to be acted on. Right. I, I don't think it is, but there, there's no due process involved in that statute. So there was no way I could dispute it within the system, except to ask for an, go to court and ask for an injunction. No way within the state, you know, administrative procedures was there a method by which I could dispute this, even though they have no grounds to order it. But who oversees this board? I mean, nobody. it does what do you mean nobody oversees the board? The, the governor, I mean, the legislature, Maine, the governor, the, the legislature, Maine legislature oversees them? Potentially, but they don't. I mean, the, the Maine legislature basically leaves them alone. The governor leaves them alone. The governor can appoint um, members and then there's a staff. Um, very hard to um, take has away the, the jobs of the staff. They're state employees. Well, has the governor been apprised of this? Um, I mean, it's it's really an abuse of their of their whole process, you know. It I is mean, an abuse. Um, that I found out that one of the legislators um, has asked for meetings with the governor, was told, and was to dis in part to discuss my case. Found this out afterwards, and um, and when he showed up, he was given an appointment to see the governor. When he showed up, there was no governor; there was an aide. That's bizarre. Why is that? So the aid because the governor together. does not want to discuss my case. The governor is perfectly, who is a you know strong Democrat, um, is perfectly happy to use my case as an example to scare other doctors around the country. If this case goes to court, the the medical board itself and all these regulations could be declared unconstitutional. I guess they feel like. Uh, it's, I don't think that's ever happened before. It's so expensive to take this to court that it's probably never been done before. Certainly not in a case like this. They don't have a precedent. The, the one precedent that really exists is that um, they used to do this to Lyme doctors. So the board has a history of taking away the licenses of Lyme doctors. Why? For, for treating chronic Lyme. And there were over over 40 or 50 doctors in the US who have lost their licenses for treating chronic Lyme. Why? These are political issues. It was, it was just like COVID. 
You know, there's no early treatment for COVID and, and, and chronic Lyme disease did not exist. And if you treated it, you were a quack and you could lose your license. So, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie, there are people have made movies on this and written books uh, on it. And as a eventually, all of the states in New England where we have a lot of Lyme disease and I've treated a lot of it, um, had to pass um, legislation that would tell the board they could no longer investigate doctors for treating chronic Lyme disease outside of the CDC's guidelines. That is just crazy. My board has done that. They have taken away the licenses of doctors who treated chronic Lyme disease until uh, actually maybe even after. So that the legislation in Maine to stop that was passed in 2015. Is this the first time that they have actually called for the revocation of the license and a psychological evaluation of a physician who has not harmed any patients, right? None of your, pa right? None of your patients who- they, with No COVID, patient complaints. No patient None. complaints, okay. And so essentially the psychological evaluation is based on what they're calling misinformation. Now, here's another question I have. Do they not have to prove that what you have put out there is misinformation? Apparently not. Just as they did, you know, with the Lyme disease doctors, there is chronic Lyme. Some federal agencies admit that there is chronic Lyme now. That didn't give those doctors their licenses back. Um, apparently, they don't have to do, these are, you know, state employees who can get away with murder. And it's very hard to challenge them, and they will not be punished in any way for what they did to me. Can't you sue them? They have the, uh, basically a liability waiver as state employees. If they're acting under, you know, under cover of their state job, they they have no liability. Now, if I can, sh if I can show this would be very difficult. It would depend on the judge. Um, if I could show they're acting above and beyond what the state you know, statutes allow them, then I have the potential of at least getting back legal fees. That's it. This whole thing makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, it's, it's very Orwellian. I've read the, uh, the complaint or the brief that your lawyers have written to take to the court. And basically they're saying that, first of all, your first amendment rights, they have no right to control your private life which is in your private life is when you made these statements and so on, and you wrote these articles right. and did this research. And then they're saying, you know, that's your first amendment, right? Okay. That's your, and also your 14th amendment, right? Right. Which is being uh, violated And the 14th amendment, of course, is that the states cannot abridge the rights that the constitution has granted. Would you be able to bring this eventually into federal court? Because it seems to me it's going to end up in a federal court. You know, I don't know the details. My lawyers decided that they thought they would have a better chance in state than in federal court. And so they started this in state court. Um, you know, those are those are questions I, I can't answer. I don't understand the issues. It, it It's their judgment about where they're more likely to find a judge who will actually listen to the meat of the case. Generally speaking, yeah, the state courts are 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 a better are a better venue for that for sure. But in, in this case, I mean, it, it's so it seems so nefarious that this state agency has cooked up this whole. And by the way, when you go for this uh, 
psychological evaluation, are you allowed to record it or have someone, your own witness there to see this thing? I mean, it's not going to be one of those, oh, it's just you and this person and no record of it except for whatever record they feel they are going to produce. As I said, I haven't been ordered yet to go, so I don't know the answer, but when the board had their single meeting about me where I was not able to speak, they did not um, want it recorded. Uh, they wanted everything kept very secret. So so I don't know how these things go. Um, we'll, ju we'll just have to wait. Isn't it March 24th that they want you to? Well, no, because this, we're, we're in the courts now. Oh, okay. So, so that's the, all put the aside. Judge is going to right have to determine it. How long do you think it'll take to hear from the judge? God knows. In a way, that's a that's a good thing. But boy, I would never go in for a psych evaluation for with some, their shrink without some kind of record or some kind of witness with me. That would make no sense whatsoever because that'll they'll they'll take you right down the rabbit hole. Don't you think? The reason I feel that way, and I totally agree with you, is because. Um, in what I was allowed to hear from the board and, and from the requests they subsequently gave me, I saw that they were clearly unofficial. They were worried that they didn't have the authority to go after what I did in my private life. And they were desperately trying to link what I did in my private life to my practice. And, um, <laughs> and that's hard to, for them to do because I did not um, link my practice to my private writings. I, you know, on my website, there's no link to my office. There's no mention that I see patients or, you know, you could, you know, come and be my patient. None of that. And, right. and the board was, was worried about that. Um, but they claim, you know, that, um, you know, my views make me unsuitable to, so, I mean, this is really a much bigger, much, much bigger issue than me. I almost don't want to discuss my case because it's really about um, who gets to decide what can be said. And, you know, not only within the context of a doctor to a patient or to the public, um, you know, the um, attorney general, it's on the, apparently, I haven't read it yet, on the front page of the New York Times today, there's an article about the attorney general asking uh, the big companies like Google, you know, and Twitter and Facebook about the spreaders of misinformation online. And federal agencies are looking to criminalize misinformation, even though it's a completely, you know, nebulous. Yes, um, but that's why your case is so important. That's why your case and, and that's why you need to speak about your case, because this in your case, the the railroad job is so obvious, okay? It's so obvious because not only did no patients die, no patients were harmed, your patients were cured, your patients are fine, no patients called, you know? So, and, and not only that, the patients who were fine, the people who saw those patients to call and report you for using ivermectin and so on and so forth. They were... didn't claim it was a problem either. It, no, it... nobody claimed anyone was harmed. The other thing they're trying to say is that you kept really, you kept bad records on these patients. Each of the three patients that are being discussed in this matter um, had a telemedicine visit with me once. So each of them had one visit 
they paid $60 for it. And I wrote down their allergies, their medications, their past history, et cetera. Right. The, and those notes were fine. There were additional notes on two of those patients who became very ill, who I knew were high risk patients. And those notes all have to do with phone calls, text messages, and emails between me and the patient. They were not visits. They were not charged for. Um, and most of them occurred at night and on weekends, you know, when I, if not all of them, when I was out of the office. And so, yeah, you jot notes down on scrap, you know, little bits of paper that you have at home and you don't take a history and physical because you're describing a limited subject. I mean, well, also you did that before when you started treating the patient. So you're, I yeah, mean, no. you're, you're in mid sort of mid treatment. If you're, if you're dealing with them, cause they're calling you cause something additional. Well, yes. So some of them got the drug before they got sick, you see. So then I didn't, so I gave them ivermectin. I gave one person ivermectin. And then a month or two or three later, she got sick. And then she was contacting me. I didn't charge for those visits, but I was, you know, making recommendations through her son. Well, you know, it's not my fault if it's the son who calls. It's not, you know, the board was saying, you know, this was confidential information and you're going through the son. It's like, Really, the patient had COVID. <laughs> you know, the patient wasn't contacting me. The son was living with her at that time and contacting me, taking I mean, care of her. Yeah, exactly. It was ridiculous things like that. But you know, that hasn't been litigated yet. So they they came up with those sorts of excuses that my records were poor when they weren't poor. Um, they were adequate records. Um, in one case, they made fun of me because a patient had texted me and. Um, I didn't know who the patient was. If you remember, when you look at a text, you get a phone number at the top. Yes. You don't get a name. So I said to the patient, yes, I remember you, you know, your husband was the patient that I had to lie to the pharmacist about to get you the hydroxychloroquine. I know who you are, but I don't know your name. I don't, I'm, a, you know, I'm at home, you know, my records are at the office. And um, if I need to call in a prescription, I need a name, I need an address, and I need a date of birth. And so right. they were making fun of me, like I'm treating patients and I don't know who they are. Well, you know, it, the only thing I could think of is that the doctors on the board don't take calls from patients at night and on weekends. And so they have no, no idea. I, I, I think they I think they were just trying to make up anything they could. They're throwing spaghetti on the wall to see what sticks. So here it is. This is this is the thing that just shocked me. I just found this so shocking. This is the order of evaluation. They're ordering this psycho psychological evaluation. And under preliminary findings, they talk about receiving uh, a complaint about you from um, uh, someone who saw a video uh, interview and saw something on your website. And they were calling you. They said what you were, the information you were disseminating was a danger to the public and uh, that your comments included that you did not intend to comply with vaccine and vac uh, masking and vaccine orders, that the federal government won't let us find out how many people are immune from less severe or asymptomatic COVID cases, and the federal government has basically prohibited the use of normal tests of immunity, normal antibody T-cell tests, et cetera, 
or some pattern of those, and instead we all have to be vaccinated, and that doesn't make scientific or medical sense. So the FDA was forced to issue a license for the Pfizer vaccine for certain people, and yet there is no community vaccine in the United States. So there are no vials of licensed Pfizer vaccines in the United States, and that the FDA did a bait and switch. Now, my question to the people who wrote this order directing evaluation is, did they look to see if anything that you had said, that they said you had said, was false? No, they didn't. Is, is that not a due diligence thing to do if you're going to accuse someone of possibly being nuts and or not able to treat or spreading? Well, but you're you're and that's the other thing. So if you are a spreader of misinformation, does that mean that you're nuts? Well, if that's the case, all of the <laughs> all of mainstream me media you know, would be called before this board if they had a doctor in front of their, uh, you know, in front of their names and were treating patients. I mean, he has and has admitted that he's spread misinformation, you know, oh. that he's he's told that he came up with a number for the percent vaccinated needed for herd immunity. And then when he thought people would tolerate a higher number, he edged it up. He admitted that it's on tape. So, yeah, I mean, our public uh, health officials have all been spreading misinformation from zero masks to one mask to two masks to no masks to an N95. Now they say the cloth masks, which they made us wear for a year and a half, don't work. So, so exactly right. I mean, I, I can't wait to get into a courtroom and debate where the misinformation is because I have evidence to support everything I've said, you know, unlike the board that didn't worry about evidence. But that's the whole thing. You know, to me, it's just like when they came after Joe Rogan, after he yeah. had uh, McCullough on and he had uh, Dr. Malone McCullough on. and Dr. Malone on, and they were both talking about what they, what they knew uh, based on their research and so on and so forth. And next thing you know, you know, Joe Rogan becomes uh, a pariah. <laughs> but my point is, where, where are the cases where people force these, these accusers to prove that the information is wrong? I see none. And that's why I was thinking this has got to be because Meryl, you are right up there with those guys in terms of your research, in terms of the information that you have gathered. Uh, I mean, why is there not a case on your behalf? I don't know if it's a defamation case. I don't know what kind of case it is, but somebody has to break through with this information in the courts. Yes. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, this is why I'm work at mounting this case is because somebody has to do it. And I felt that, you know, I, you know, I put my head in the lion's den by challenging the board and asking them for their authority, because I knew that that my care has been so careful that they wouldn't be able to pin a, a pin, you know, a, the case on Merrill Nass provides bad care to patients. I knew that I was going to be good that way, because I, as I said, in 41 years, nobody's complained. I've never had a malpractice case. You know, my care is very good, very careful, caring, inexpensive, 
you know, I'm I'm a doctor who my patients yeah, love me. Yeah, sixty bucks a so, visit. I'll tell you, I'm coming to see you, Meryl. <laughs> you know what they would do with all the other doctors is, you know, they're de and they were desperate to find this. In my case, is desperately trying to find a case where they can find I made a mistake. That's what they're looking for because they don't want this to be about misinformation. They want the you know, they want the information to get out to scare other doctors regarding misinformation and ivermectin, but then they want to pin me down on, you know, I killed a patient. Well, I haven't killed any patients. Not only that, but the patients that you have treated with the banned drugs are just fine. Thank you very yes, much. Thank As a you. matter of fact, thanks to the banned drugs, those patients are just fine. So yes. this is, this is the part where, where it gets, it gets Orwellian. But the second part to me is equally disturbing. They did it to Bruce Ivins. Bruce Ivins was my friend. He was, he was the accused anthrax letter perpetrator, never right. had a bit of evidence against him, right. but they drove him insane. He started drinking heavily and then allegedly committed suicide or was murdered. And, um, uh, the, the anthrax letters case was pinned on him again, without a shred of evidence. Yeah, my point is that they had to present him as an unhinged guy. And so this evaluation thing is the road to unhinged Merrill. That's my concern. And that's yes. why I feel like, I don't know what your lawyers have to do, but you can't go in there with their shrink knowing on what they have based this order for the evaluation without it being recorded and out without you having your own shrink there to to witness and watch and see if this person is is actually conducting an evaluation per whatever the industry standards are for an evaluation if you have to go do it and boy i'll tell you what that's insult to injury that you've got to pay 2100 bucks for that I know, <laughs> I know for something I don't need, it's not appropriate and there's no grounds for it. So, um, you know, I wish I could go after this board, but I, I don't know that I can at this point anyway. But certainly I want people to be aware that, that this is a rogue board, that this board in conjunction with these uh, medical nonprofits has created a new crime of misinformation and another new crime, which is writing prescriptions for, for drugs that are legal, that um, there's no reason not to prescribe them for COVID and many reasons to prescribe it is because they actually work and they save lives. Um, and, and that we're living in a, in a system, just as you said, falling down the rabbit hole. This is like Alice in Wonderland. You know, everything is reversed. So you know, we have these two terrible drugs now that the FDA authorized in December called Paxlovid <clears throat> and Malnupiravir. And they both have very serious um, <clears throat> potential side effects, complications. The Malnupiravir um, causes mutations. So it could damage your DNA. And the um, Paxlovid is comprised of two drugs, one of which has a black box warning, which means it's quite a considered a quite dangerous drug. And yet these two drugs, Biden said he's going to give to patients for free when they go into a drugstore and have a positive COVID test without a doctor's prescription. So you've got two days. This is what he said in the State of the Union two days ago. He said, we're going to give you a drug for COVID that the moment you have a positive test in a drugstore. 
Oh my God. And, and they have to give it to you for free because neither of these drugs is licensed, unlike hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which are both fully licensed, which would cost next to nothing wait, if we had wait. a formal. Wait, so, oh, wait a second. Is this a drug that actually should be like a prescription drug that they're just going to hand out? Yeah. So they're, yeah. So, well, we don't, so Biden in his State of the Union did not say what drug you were going to get when you showed up at a drugstore and, and were tested for COVID in the drugstore, had a positive result. And he said, we're going to give you a drug right then and there to take home. And whose COVID. drug is it, by the way? So he didn't say, but what we know he bought was he bought $2.2 billion worth of malnupiravir, the Merck drug, which Merck admits is only 30% effective and causes mutations. And I didn't look up the amount he bought of the Paxlovid, which is the Pfizer drug, which um, has a lot of drug interactions and is comprised of an HIV drug with a black box warning. So those are the two drugs he has available to hand out as a pill, unless he's going to give you hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, which are also possibilities. None of these should be used without a doctor's you know, an a doctor, a learned intermediary who knows what drugs you're on, what your condi medical conditions are, and whether it's appropriate for you to have these drugs, and what dose you should have. So, I mean, this was a crazy thing that he that Biden said in his State of the Union, but I I heard it, I made note of it. Where is this all going, Meryl? The government wants to decide what medicines you get. If you go into the hospital with COVID. They're going to give you remdesivir unless you yell and scream and cause quite a stir, because that is the one thing you will be initially offered. You may be offered steroids, and then you may be offered some experimental drugs or something else after. But the number one drug which for which the hospital gets a, a special increased amount of money if they give it to you is remdesivir, which is not used in other countries, which is not recommended by the WHO because it doesn't work by the time it might work early, it does not work by the time you get into the hospital. So that is what you get. So this is all going to a place where the federal government for reasons best known to itself. No, this is a full blown corporate corporate take We don't thank you. <clears throat> we don't care if these drugs work or not. <clears throat> You're going to we're going to give these drugs to you for what we think, you know, you should take them for, even though they don't work, because this money you know, you're, this is where we want you to spend your money. I mean, right. this, and, this is, and we don't care if you're injured by them, but this is, I mean, um, this is insane. This is a right. It's a complete takeover of medicine. It is a controlled demolition of the medical care as we knew it, where you get to choose your own doctor, you and your doctor get to choose your own medications, you know, and things are private. Now there's, you know, surveillance, nothing is private and you're being told what you get. And medical care costs 20% of GDP, $4.1 trillion a year. And the medical industries, pharma and the government want to decide how that money is to be spent. Well, this is, uh, this is kind of terrifying. And I just wonder, I mean, is there any way out of this? 
Well, I mean, my court case is a little piece of it. I mean, we, we have to expose what's going on. I mean, the major media, as you know, are not covering any of this. So people don't understand. They know they once their relative is in the hospital, suddenly they realize they can't get the ivermectin and they get angry, but it doesn't go any further than that. And, you know, people are calling me all the time. How does my relative get ivermectin? How can I stop them getting remdesivir? And I say, you have, who's the, you know, do you have the power of attorney? You know, is it, they say, well, my uncle's on a ventilator. I said, well, somebody gets to make the decisions. Oh, well, the doctors just do it. Well, I say, if you pick up a stink, they can't, you know, somebody, either the spouse or the child, you know, somebody is a legal authority. Well, we're not allowed into the hospital. We don't know what he's getting. Well, call the hospital president and say you withdraw your consent. You don't want him on remdesivir. You tell the hospital president that and record the conversation. This is a huge shift in paradigm for people because people normally, they go, they, they go to their doctor and, uh, you know, whatever the doctor says goes because the doctor knows best. Right. And but in you the, these the days, doctor. well, yes, but these days, you know, these days it's the, you go with trepidation to your doctor. I mean, I, I do, you know, you go with some trepidation and until you realize that you're with someone who is willing to hear what you have to say and so on and so forth. But, you know, in our case, I mean, I, I mean, I'm an investigative reporter, so I do do some research before I go see a doctor. I research what I've got. I research whatever, but a lot of people, they just go to the doctor and they don't, it does. And, and, it shouldn't have to be that way. It shouldn't have to be a research project for the patient. It shouldn't, there shouldn't have to be a dictatorial thing coming from the doctor who is listening to, you know, and doctors should do their due diligence too before they prescribe these medications. And so the whole system is almost collapsing into this hostile environment for for the patient. And it's so the patient is just sort of looked at as, this income producer until and unless they die. Because the the idea seems to be you either maintain the patient on something for a chronic illness, or you give all these super, you know, expensive drugs or whatever uh, until the patient dies. I mean, I, Am I, am I, is this too stark an evaluation, do you think? It's very difficult for people in the medical profession right now, and they are leaving it in droves. So there, there's a crisis of not enough doctors and nurses and, and, you know, people who work in nursing homes and everything in, in the medical system is short-staffed right now, in part because a lot of people saw what the vaccines did to their patients and, you know, ran off. Um, but, you know, most of those people have a mortgage, have, you know, if you're licensed in the United States, if we, in your profession, where are you going to go, right? Can, you can't even move to another country. It, it's going to be the same in almost every state. Um, you have to obey your employer. Now, in the old days, doctors were a cottage industry and most of them owned their own businesses. Well, those days are gone. Very few, I, I am still a cottage, in, or I was a cottage industry. That's another threat to the system. So in the hospital, practically all the doctors in the hospital are employees of the hospital. 
and or the hospital system. And therefore, they have to do what they're told or they will lose their jobs. So they may not like remdesivir, they may see it killing patients, but what have they got? They've got a boss who, who says you have to do this because this is how we make money. And they have the NIH guidelines. The NIH guidelines are the only treatment guidelines that are considered acceptable in the United States. I mean, I used the FLCCC guidelines, but officially NIH took over guidelines for treatment for of COVID. COVID. They are not a treatment organization. They are, they are an organization to give out research funds um, they do a little research. They're not involved with treatment. CDC and is involved with treatment. FDA is involved with, med is, with medications. But for some reason, I don't know why, and it'd be worth it for you to look into it. How did NIH even obtain the authority to issue guidelines? So they did. And those guidelines say remdesivir. And so if you don't use remdesivir, you are acting outside the approved guidelines. You are subject to malpractice. So if you kill a patient on remdesivir, you're it's doing okay. what you're supposed to. It's okay. If a patient dies and you didn't give them remdesivir, you could be sued for malpractice. So there, there are many different pieces of this. Oh my God, they're caught between together. a rock and a hard place. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. So somebody very clever, you know, a bunch of people figured out how to make this work over a lot of over a number of years. I mean, uh, the, the business of getting rid of doctors as, as a cottage industry, you know, that really started with the Clintons, you know, 1992. Really? When, yeah, he started uh, encouraging hospitals um, th through, you know, reimbursements and such to buy up doctors practices. And then the, the hospitalist movement was that it would be more efficient for hospitals to have doctors that they employed rather than the patients outside doctors coming into the hospital to treat them, you know, and then going back to their practice. In the old days, you know doctors what? made rounds early in the morning, you know, and then worked in the office. They don't do that anymore. This is like the one world hospital thing coming too. Yes. Oh, listen. Before we go, because we've run out of time, I need to know where, if people want to contribute to your legal, um, to your legal efforts here, what do they Thank do? you. So Children's Health Defense in Atlanta, Georgia, Bobby Kennedy's organization is helping me pay my legal expenses. And if someone would like to contribute, please contribute to them. Um, it is a 501c3 and, um, you know, put my name on it, uh, explain what you're doing. That would be very helpful. Um, this is unfortunate. It's very, very expensive, which is why other people just give up their licenses because they can't afford half a million dollars or more to litigate something like this, you know, when it's so crazy. Well, hang in there because you might be the tip of the spear. Thank you. Hope so. Thank you, Meryl.